In Session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the program or suggest topics for the show. And the programs are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, studio number 3104410555. Before I begin with the summary of the book of the week, um, well, I guess I can thank my brother Parham Holakwi who joined me Monday night. That's why I'm doing the book review today. Uh, He talked about the exciting advisory work he's doing um, in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, so thank you again to Power Home for being there Monday. Uh, so before I do the book review for the past week, the book for this week is another classic, Codependent No More by Melody Beatty. Codependent No More. Uh, Melody Beatty, this is a, a classic book, um, and I'll talk more about what co- codependency is, something that you see in almost every family, but especially in a lot of Iranian families. Um, so I think it's going to be a good one to read if you haven't already, but I hope you'll join me in reading that, and I'll talk about that next week on Monday's show. But the book for this past week was The Willpower Instinct by Kelly McGonigal, um, which is uh, was my first time reading it, and I highly recommend it. If you have not read this book already, please read this book. I think it's something that anyone would benefit from. Um, And once again, a thanks to the listener. I don't have his name, but he called in once and mentioned this book. And then I made sure to pick it up, and I'm happy I did. Um, But it's a great book looking at willpower and uh, the science of willpower, which is a course that the author teaches at Stanford University. So to begin with, willpower is something that oftentimes we think of as a trait that you either have or you don't have. You know, some people say, oh, he has or she has great willpower. I don't. And in a way, we see it as something that's unchangeable or that we can't improve on. But what she shows us in this book is that is not the case at all. Everyone can improve their willpower and their science behind it. And also everyone has challenges and struggles with willpower, something that I'll touch on later on as well, that we should not be so hard on ourselves about that because it's part of human nature that we have issues with willpower. And actually, the reason why it's part of human nature is that essentially, uh, as she puts it, there are two brains or even two versions of our self. There's the one part, which is part of the midbrain or the older part of the brain, which acts on impulse and seeks immediate gratification. This is the part that wants something. Um, you see the food you like, you want it, you want to go. If you have a gambling problem, it makes you want to gamble, or if you want to have a spending problem, it makes you want to spend in that moment. But that's the part that makes you want to act on impulse and seeks immediate gratification. Then we have uh, the frontal lobe and the newer parts of the brain, which are focused on planning, but also on delaying gratification in order to reach long-term 
goals. So we have that part too. And so we can imagine you've probably experienced this, these two parts of our brain sometimes battling it out within your head. And sometimes the old brain wins and you go and do the impulsive thing and seek gratification and give up on your goals, or at least let's say do something that's not in accordance with your long-term goals. And sometimes you're able to withstand the impulse and the newer brain wins. But we have to recognize we all have this within ourselves. And it's not that the impulses are bad, so we shouldn't think there's just a bad part and a good part. We have to understand that we also need that part. It helps us understand our world and respond to the world in a good way too. But if we constantly give in to it, that can be the problem. So to begin with, she talks about three types of willpower that we can have. There's I will willpower, I will challenges, which is things that we want to do that we're putting off. So if you're procrastinating doing your work, what you're looking for is I will power. Um, then there's I won't power, and that's trying to avoid the things that hurt us, whether it's overeating, drugs, uh, smoking a cigarette, uh, other harmful habits that we have. And this asks for us to use our I won't power. And then she also talks about I want power, which are more long-term, bigger goals that we might focus on, like I want to be a healthier person or I want to be more uh, productive, bigger goals type of a thing. And those are I want power. So she talks about these three different types of willpower. Now, willpower can also be described like a muscle. Of course, there isn't an actual muscle um, in the body or even in the brain that's specifically just a willpower muscle. But like a muscle, we can strengthen it by trying to practice willpower, even they've done studies where you practice something that doesn't involve a lot of willpower, but just makes you more focused. For example, using your non-dominant hand to brush your teeth and open doors, but it caused you to focus, and they found that it had other effects on people's willpower. So you can strengthen your willpower, but also like a muscle, you can become fatigued. Your willpower, willpower can become um, tired over time. And if you are asked to use it a lot in one area of your life, even we see that people have a hard time maintaining that willpower somewhere else. Even um, she cites a study that found that when people, uh, and don't be alarmed, but when people are dieting, they are more likely to cheat on their husbands or wives because they're focusing their willpower there. They might give in in another area. So um, I, I hope that anyone listening doesn't think if their husband or wife is on a diet that they're cheating on them but just showing that willpower is something that we sometimes have a, we can look at it as having a built-up reserve, um, but we can also strengthen that muscle as well. Now, there are a lot of factors that can even affect your willpower. One is sleep, because when you're tired, the parts of the brain that are focusing on delaying gratification are a little bit weaker. So we can imagine in that argument or that battle between the impulsive side and the delaying gratification side, the delaying gratification side feels a little bit weaker, so you're more likely to give in to impulse. And I'm sure many of you can relate to that, though, when you haven't slept enough, you're more likely to slip on your diet or smoke or do uh, many other things that are habits or things you don't want to do. Uh, they, they unfortunately become harder to withstand. So sleep is important in, in maintaining your willpower. Um, also, slowing down your breathing is something that you can do, and she shares some exercises that actually by slowing down your breathing, even just for a few minutes, um, you can activate more your, your I won't powers or your willpower and become stronger. So we actually have some control over that, and she talks about meditation and how that can be helpful as well in improving your willpower. So again, 
yet another way that meditation shows itself as being helpful to us. And even good nutrition can make a difference. What you eat and put in your body can make you stronger and make your willpower better as well. Now, throughout the book, she she shares many studies that sometimes have surprising findings, um, but then also sometimes you can recognize them in your own life. So, for example, sometimes telling ourselves we've been good essentially gives us the license to be bad somewhere else. So if, for example, you kept yourself from eating the cookies somewhere, you're more likely to go somewhere else and eat more and tell yourself, oh, I was good today, so I deserve it. Or people start working out and they actually eat more than the calories they're burning so they don't lose or even gain weight because they somehow feel like, well, because I was so good today, I deserve this treat. Now, that's the problem of looking at willpower is a moral issue, like I've been quote-unquote good, so now I deserve to be bad. And she says, rather, we should focus on our long-term goals. Well, if you did something in the right step towards your goal, don't take two steps back because of that one step forward. Imagine if you're trying to walk to a destination, you say, because I've walked 500 steps in the right direction, let me turn around and walk uh, 200 steps the wrong way as a reward to myself. So when we focus on the good and bad part, the morality issue, it makes us actually more likely to slip up and to say, because I've been good, now I deserve to be bad. Now, another experience that many people have probably experienced is that sometimes being quote unquote bad in this way or breaking your willpower challenge leads to us being even worse, being even more bad. And so they've done lots of studies like this where people who are on Um, a diet, and once they break that diet, then they go the other end. And actually, she calls it the what the hell effect. And actually, I've heard it called even worse things in AA meetings. But um, you kind of get the what the hell, I've already broken my diet, let's go all the way. Or what the hell, I had one cigarette, let me just finish off this pack, who cares? And that unfortunately is something that we're prone to do. And it could seem puzzling at times because sometimes, for example, someone who has a drinking problem, they're not feeling very good about themselves and then they drink. And then the next day they feel a lot of shame about drinking and that makes them feel bad. But unfortunately, what's the easiest fix for them when they're feeling bad? Well, going back to that drug of choice or food or whatever else it might be. So they go back and drink again. And they found that that happened in studies that when people uh, broke their Um, commitment, let's say, to not drink, then they're more likely to drink again the next night, which is puzzling because you think, well, if you feel so bad about it, um, we would use that in a positive way. But that's exactly the problem. Most of us think that by being hard on ourselves and by guilting and shaming ourselves, that's actually going to help us in our willpower challenges and having more willpower. Or sometimes it's as if we think by by being so hard on myself, that shows you how high, it shows to myself how high of a standard I have to my, for myself and how good I am. So in a way, we try to almost tell us that this shows how good I am, that I'm so disappointed in myself and I'm beating myself so much and we'll show off about being our own worst critic and about being a perfectionist. But all the studies show that this actually backfires. It doesn't work. The idea that you beat yourself up or make yourself feel so bad about it actually makes you more likely to break the habit you're trying to uh, work on even more. Just like I was saying before, so if you drink and you feel bad about it, if you beat yourself up even more, 
I was so bad. I was so wrong. I can't believe I did it. I'm such a this, that, and the other. Well, you're more likely to drink again that night because you're feeling so bad. And that's what you do to try to, to calm yourself. And they showed that when they actually taught people to have compassion for themselves, okay, you slipped up, but everyone does, or this happens and it's okay. They were less likely to then relapse again that night or break their commitment that night. So that's a very important lesson I think this book had, that to tell ourselves or to beat ourselves up, it doesn't make us more likely to succeed. It actually makes us less likely to succeed. Being compassionate and loving towards yourself actually works far better. Now, another interesting thing that we observe when it comes to um, willpower is that we have this idea of our future self uh, being so much stronger and better than our present self. And you maybe have experienced this. You're like, okay, I want to go to the gym today. And then you're so tired or you come home, you're like, oh, I don't really feel like going, but oh, next week I'm going to go every day. I'm going to be there for two hours and I'm going to be sweating and going at it so good. So it's okay that I'm missing today. And of course, in one way, this is our justification for giving into that impulse and um, humans are amazing at justification in general, but especially we're very good at justifying giving in to instant gratification. Oh, I'll start start my diet tomorrow so I can eat whatever I want today. Oh, I want to quit smoking on the first of the month anyway, so let me smoke today and tomorrow and I'll start on Monday or start on the first. And we trick ourselves into giving in. Again, that's that part of the brain winning the battle. Um, but another way we do this is by thinking our future self is this incredibly strong person with amazing willpower that will get the job done or will enjoy the painful task more than we do now. And interestingly, even when they do brain scans, they see that when we think of our future self, the part of our brain gets activated that thinks of other people, not of us. So if you ask us about ourselves in the present, parts of the brain get activated. But when we say think about yourself two weeks from now or a year from now, a different part of the brain gets activated. And so we have to remind ourselves of this idea that we can tell ourselves that my future self is going to be so strong and be able to withstand all the temptations and will be able to do things perfectly. That's a lie we tell ourselves that gets us in trouble. Your future self is you now. You tomorrow is you today. And whatever it is that's hard to do today will also be hard to do tomorrow. It's not going to magically be easy, but that's a way that we can trick ourselves. But you know, I also like, as I mentioned before, the idea that she talks about in this book, and I've talked about it before in talking about self-compassion and self-love, that by being hard on ourselves, we don't help. And also by trying to deny what we genuinely feel or think doesn't help either. If you're someone who's going on a diet, it doesn't mean that tomorrow ice cream and cakes automatically are going to taste bad to you now. If you're a smoker and you want to quit, it doesn't mean that tomorrow cigarettes are going to be disgusting to you. That's just not how it works. Of course, you enjoyed whatever that was. So to lie to yourself doesn't work. And that's exactly what the research finds, that when we try to lie to ourselves or deny our feeling or our urge, it just comes back stronger. Um, they shared a famous study where people were asked not to think about a white bear for five minutes, but they found all they could think about was a white bear. No matter what they tried to do, it just kept coming back stronger. So when you try to tell yourself, I don't want cigarettes anymore. I hate cigarettes now, or I don't feel the urge to have a cigarette anymore. It doesn't work. And actually she talks about surfing the urge or staying with it, recognizing how you feel. And this comes back to mindfulness where you recognize the feeling or the urge or temptation or thought, but you don't 
allow it or you don't make it define or dictate who you are and what you do. This is why we say it's better to say to yourself, I feel angry rather than I am angry. I am angry means it defines who I am and it's going to, in a way, dictate what I'm going to do next. I feel angry means that this is the emotion I'm having, which one is just a feeling and two, I also know is going to pass. And because of that, I don't have to act on it. So you can have a temptation. You could say, oh, there it is. I have this desire to have that cookie or have this desire to smoke that cigarette or have have a drink, but it doesn't mean I have to act on it and being aware of it and accepting it. And the power of acceptance is something she talks about actually allows us to resist that temptation better. So again, being in a healthy relationship with ourself, recognizing, yeah, I have that urge. It doesn't make me a bad person. And sometimes I see people that do that to themselves. They say, I can't believe I still want to have a drink after how much it's done to hurt me. Well, yes, I can understand that you'd wish you don't didn't have that urge anymore, life would be easier and it has hurt you a lot in your life that you've wanted to drink or the drinks that you have had. But we have to understand that your brain is still going to want to have that drink in your body. This is just something that we have to accept. And the better you can accept that about yourself, that it's understandable and it's human for me to have this urge, the better you're actually able to resist it and to help yourself. So to accept ourselves, our feelings, our thoughts, or even in this case, our temptations, our urges, and our desires is better than trying to resist them and put them away. So this book, I just shared some of all the different studies that she uh, explains in this book, Kelly McGonigal, The Willpower Instinct. I hope if you haven't read it, you do, because I think it's something that all of us could benefit from. Everyone is trying to um, either stop doing things or start doing things in their lives, and everyone struggles with it. It's not easy for anyone. And here she has lots of practical advice and guidance on how you can become better at that for yourself in your own life. And again, the book for this week is Codependent No More by Melody Beatty. I hope you'll join me in reading this book as well. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. We'll be right back. Back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yes, hi, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Um, I'm, making, I'm making this call about my son. I have a son who's 23 years old. Mm-hmm. Firstly, thank you very much for taking my of call. Of course, thanks for calling. Uh, yeah. Uh, I've got a son who's 23 years old, and he's a twin. Uh uh, they, during their childhood, they have been through quite a few trauma, and I have been a very sort of angry and controlling mom, although I have changed myself by listening to Dr. Holakui and listening to CDs and things like that. Now, my son, up to the age of 18, before he goes to university, he, he, he's highly intelligent, and he's uh, great in the school, high school and college, were well, really, really excellent. Every... Uh, exam he passed about 100%, 99%, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got to one of the best universities here in our, in our country. And uh, since he got into university, he started losing concentration. 
he started drinking heavily. And uh, anyway, he got his degree, but not with a very um, great uh, sort of grade. Mm-hmm. And then he started a job. And the job involves taking exams because it's a professional job. Uh, but recently he's saying that he can't concentrate on exams. He's getting anxious. He's getting panic attacks and, uh, and issues like that. And a few days he then go to the office. And he's just sort of turning slowly, um, sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, I'm, I don't know, I don't want to use the word depressed, but I think he's, he's just losing interest. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was wondering, I mean, what is it that I could do? Well, I mean, you know, it does sound like he's having depression and anxiety, whether we want to diagnose him with that, but it seems like he's definitely experiencing both of those things, and he's likely going to need help. You didn't explain what his childhood was like, the traumas, and we might, maybe we can talk a bit about that. But he seems like he's a very intelligent uh, boy, like you said, based on his exam scores, but emotionally, yes, and but emotionally and psychologically, he's suffering. And this is why we talk a lot about emotional intelligence and how important that is, because even if you are brilliant, um, it doesn't matter if you aren't able to take care of yourself and to emotionally be present and to keep going. It's like having... A car with an amazing engine and performance but if the driver is not okay it doesn't matter or even if you don't have gas you can't start the car you know so it doesn't matter how good yeah. the car is so he has this yeah. amazing mm-hmm. uh you know hardware in his head but because yeah. of emotionally what he's dealing with he's not able to use that in a way that is yeah. good so that seems to be what we're talking about and this is why when it comes to you know kids and even their grades in elementary school, high school, I don't care as much about it. I care much more about how they're doing emotionally because their emotional development is much more likely to predict their success and even more important than success, their overall happiness and well-being. So when we become too obsessed with test scores, it's a problem. And even maybe this isn't the case for you, but in a lot of families, I see, well, the kid's getting straight A's, so they don't care about anything else, even if they know the kid is suffering. So yes, if a kid is getting bad grades, sometimes that's indicative of something not being okay, which we have to pay attention to. But just because a child is doing well academically, we shouldn't think, okay, well, there's no problem because he's getting good grades. Now, nonetheless, mm-hmm. um, let's get into a little bit of when you say there was, they experienced lots of traumas, your boys. What what type yes. of things are we talking about? Well, the first trauma was, uh, firstly, I um, when I was pregnant, mm-hmm. uh, they had, um, I had a severe case of preeclampsia. I had a lot of liver failure. So they, was both, they were born by a cesarean infection. Mm-hmm. And um, at, at 30, 30 weeks pregnancy, uh, and uh, then at the age of two or three, um, actually a bit older, about, about four, um, me and my ex-husband went through a um, terrible divorce. And the divorce was fighting in the court for about four years. And the children were involved in all of these. And for a time, I did not allow them to see their father. Mm-hmm. Both the father, their father and me, they were both very angry and we had, uh, so we had issues of our own. Um, at the age of 11, as he went to a senior school, uh, because they changed the school at the age 10, 11, uh, his father disappeared. And um, uh, the police believe, although nobody has been found, the police believe that he's been murdered in another country, oh. but they couldn't, they couldn't find, they couldn't find anybody, basically. Oh. How old were and the boys then? They were 11. 11, wow, okay. Yeah. And uh, they were sort of um, 
followed by reporters and things mm. like that uh, in the school at home. They had to go through the back routes, uh, and uh, and all they went on for a few years, about mm-hmm. two or three years. Mm-hmm. Then things settled down, and then we had another huge court case because of assets of their father. Uh, in the court case, there were people who sort of forged signatures and papers, and then we had to go for three years in there. Uh, and when the father disappeared, the father's family, because they were divorced, and they did not allow the boys to go to their father's house and, and pick up uh, pick up their pieces and, and whatever they had in there, because they used to go there over the weekend. So they were all of a sudden stopped of seeing, of seeing not their father, but also going going to father's house. Uh, so all these have been going on till they actually got um, through the age of 18. Mm-hmm. But... Um, during those times, although it was very traumatic, they did not show any signs, although I tried to take them to therapists and things like that, but they did not show any sign, and the exam markers were excellent, and mm-hmm. the, according to the teachers in the school, it seems that uh, these things did not affect them as much. In, as much in or it didn't school, show itself, uh, yeah, right. It didn't show itself, yeah. but it doesn't mean it wasn't yeah, had an effect, show, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. probably they're dealing yeah. with so much they learn to just hold everything in. So, yeah. you know, they're kind of like, unfortunately, there's like a ticking time bomb where it's, nothing's happening right now, no. but at one point it can explode. What you're, I mean, because what you're describing is extreme and very even rare things that they had to deal with. That's a lot of pressure. And yeah. even you acknowledge yourself being angry and not being an easy mom either. So they had yeah, to deal with a lot. So they, and again, if they don't have a dad that's literally there and then a mom who's angry and difficult, your kids learn that they have to hold everything with inside themselves and unfortunately learn some bad things about themselves and life and relationships that are going to be really harmful. So it sounds like your son is is really struggling psychologically. And, um, you know, he said you were saying how they weren't showing any signs before it wasn't affecting them. But I think it's important to make that distinction. Not showing signs doesn't mean it hasn't affected them. And especially I see this a lot with parents uh, going through divorce. They say, oh, it's really affecting my one kid because he's crying all the time, but the other one is perfectly fine. She doesn't mind at all or he doesn't mind at all. Mm -hmm. And I always say in some ways I'm actually more concerned about the one that's not showing anything because that could mean they're holding so much in and might Mm -hmm. come out in a bad way. So anyway, you know, he wasn't showing much until more recently, but clearly he's suffering. And also, you know, the thing about therapy is I'm obviously a big proponent of and try to uh, encourage people to go, but really the person has to be ready to go and also ready to face the issues that are going on. So although therapy maybe wasn't helpful for him then when he was a child or younger, uh, hopefully it can be helpful for him now. And absolutely he needs uh, treatment. It's going to be longer term treatment because we're talking about lots of traumas from a very young age and he's carrying all of that with him. Um, and, you know, the lack of motivation, lack of desire, and the way he's feeling, that seems to be very much related to all these things he's been through. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but about the fact that they don't know what happened to their father, is that is that something that they've been suffering all their life, or is there anything I could do to bring that to the end? Well, I mean, you know, that is tough. So, you know, the way you described it is that they believe he's been murdered, but no body was ever found. Is that right? No. Okay. Well, that's tough. You know, I mean, for a lot of people, I've heard of stories where, you know, someone went missing, but they never found the body. It's really hard for people. It's a lot harder to get closure. This is why we do things like a funeral or even people see the body 
because it makes it more real, even though it's painful to see, okay, this person is being buried in the ground, they are no longer here. It really hits us. But they, uh, because of that, sometimes people, even somewhere unconsciously or even consciously, they still hold on to this hope that maybe he's coming back. Maybe someday he's there. So it does make it a little harder to move on. So there could be that going on. You can't do anything about it. So, I mean, you're not, you can't lie to them. Uh, or, you know, pretend like you know something no. or anything like that, but just recognize that this also, it's hard enough for a 10, 11 year old to have to grieve the loss of their father, but even yeah. more so in this kind of a case. One, that murder was the, the way that they said it happened, which itself is very difficult, but then on top of that, yeah. to never see the body or never know really what happened, that that's very difficult. So yeah. we have to understand that's there's nothing you can do to t- erase that or take that away, but recognize that this is going to make things even more challenging for them in the grieving process and even complicates it or might get make them stuck because they might not fully yeah. get to that point of acceptance that okay he really is gone yeah. um but you know when it comes to talking to him you're not going to be able to fix what's going on or fix is not even the word i like but i want you to not put so much pressure on yourself to make things better your son is suffering mm-hmm. and he needs help and he needs professional mm-hmm. help he might even need medication, but he's definitely going to need therapy and he's going to need it for a while. Now, when you talk to him, um, I would suggest, as I always do, that rather than saying you need therapy because you have all these problems, but rather say you deserve therapy because of all the pain you've suffered. And one thing you actually can do um, is, since you mentioned yourself that being a mom, you don't think you always were the best, you've tried to work on yourself, which is great. But if you haven't already, maybe you already have, is to really apologize for what you have done as a mom or what you've created in their life. Um, because an apology can go a long way in at least starting to heal some of the wounds. Have you been able to do that, to apologize to your sons? I actually have done that. Good, because, good. Um, good. I spoke to, to your dad in, um, in the conference here in London, mm-hmm. and uh, that's what he said I should do, and I, I, I have done that. But I just don't know how to help with his his um, drinking, and uh, also when because he drinks a lot with mm-hmm. his friends, mm-hmm. obviously he gets into depths and things like that. And at one time he came out of the bar and then he was kicked in the head, mm-hmm. got involved in a fight, wow. and uh, he ended up in hospital. He was unconscious for about five ten minutes. Felt why the ambulance arrived. So all these things are really a big cause of worry. Of course, I can understand that's very concerning. We want to help him. You know, I I want to talk a little bit more about him. So hang on the line. Let's talk a bit after the break, okay? Okay. All right. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. back let's go to our caller caller are you still there yes i am here okay so we're talking about your son is 23 um and you're worried about lots of things including his his drinking what has he done recently in regards to treatment or does he seem to acknowledge that he has problems or is, is struggling he does he does acknowledge something then he uh, sees 
sort of uh, a therapist I found for him. Uh, but after a couple of sessions, he says, oh, I've had, I had enough. You know, I just, uh, I'm okay now, I'm okay now. Mm-hmm. And so he just sort of, it just goes in now and then. And he doesn't go continuously. Yeah. Obviously, I can't force him. The other thing I remembered while I was waiting for you uh, is that um, since childhood, um, since he was a child, if, if I compare my two sons together, it was always the story of the tortoise and the rabbit, and him being the rabbit. He always starts everything fast and well mm-hmm. ahead of everybody else. But every time he gets halfway through or two-thirds through a project, he just gets bored or he just sort of sits and then he doesn't do much about it. So he doesn't finish tasks, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, um, you know, th- that could be sometimes a sign of ADHD. Not, not necessarily, yeah. but it can be. So that's something... Um, that possibly help makes it hard for him to follow through, but also the way you're describing him and his um, probably issues with self-esteem. It's also maybe hard for him to get something to feel that he he sabotages himself too, which is something yeah. he might be doing. So it, it's hard to say exactly what that is about. But my concern is that without getting help, it's not going to get better. And uh, you know. The most common amount of sessions, I don't know the actual number, but of therapy is people go once or twice. It's very common that people just go a few okay. times. And um, a lot of times they say that, and any therapist can can, men, can probably relate to this, but you'll hear, oh, I think I'm better now, or I can do it without therapy yeah, is very exactly. common. And usually what exactly. that is, is a, 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 you know, going to therapy is hard. I always mention this, that we talk about therapy as doing something for yourself which it is. But unlike doing something for yourself, like getting a massage where you just lay there and someone makes you feel better and you decrease your pain, it's more like going to a personal trainer where you have to really push yourself and work hard to get results. It's not something easy and it's not something um, that's going to just feel good the whole time. Actually, it's going to make you feel bad a lot of the times and especially for someone like your son who has so much pain for him to really get into everything, we have to understand it's going to be very difficult okay. and more than likely he's going to want to avoid that if he can. Mm. So I want you mm. to be patient with that and recognize that, that he okay. probably knows he has issues. It's hard for him to maybe yeah. fully accept it, but it, it's very scary mm. for him to go to therapy and to actually yeah. face everything. Mm. So I'm not that mm. surprised that he went a few times and stopped. Um, mm. So keep mm. that in mind. Now don't tell him. Okay. I know why you stopped going and this is it. Because obviously I don't know for sure, but I'm just saying this is possible. But also when it yeah. comes to his drinking, which maybe is getting him in trouble, we know that addiction is something where if the person doesn't accept the problem, there's not much we mm. can do. Um, yeah. Has he ever? Have you ever talked to him about that or has he ever talked about his drinking to you? Well, he just says everybody does it and he doesn't drink every night. He just over the weekends when, when he does go out with his friends. Um, he does drink excessively, um, much more than he should. But it's not that every night he drinks. And um, well, uh, you know, to be an alcohol. Well, I'm not saying he is an alcoholic. I don't know that yeah. at all. But just the the idea that because someone doesn't drink every night, they don't have a problem is not. Um, true. So just letting you know that and also for the listeners, you can even drink once every couple of weeks and be an alcoholic if you drink to the point where it's causing significant impairment in your life in some way. So um, that itself is not a reason. Again, I don't know how how his drinking is affecting him, but I just wanted to make that point clear. Now, 
you said one time he got into a fight or and he got kicked. Yeah. Other than that, yeah. how do you see the effects? Because you're saying he drinks more than he quote unquote should. Now, how else yeah. do you see the drinking affecting his life? Um, he does it every weekend, almost every Friday, Saturday. Basically. Okay, that that doesn't necessarily mean he has a drinking problem. Um, yeah. Many people in their youth will drink most weekends. Um, it does depend yeah. on the degree. You know the amount and the way it's affecting their life. But any other things, yeah. any consequences you've seen from his drinking? Mm. Yeah, lack of concentration, uh, basically. But what uh, is that? But that, how is that from the drinking? Well, I don't know if it's from the drinking. It's just uh, because he's got to take exams, and recently he has um, he has not taken one or two. Uh, but before he did, because he's trying, he's in becoming a CPA, and um, and he needs to take exams after exams after exams, uh-huh. you know. And um, the last two he didn't take because he said he's not prepared and he can't concentrate. I just guess it is because of the drinking. Um, well, I wouldn't assume... I wouldn't assume that's the case. I mean, I, I don't know if his drinking is a problem, but from what you're saying, nothing is not, definitely not cleared. I wouldn't focus on that if I were you to focus yeah, on his drinking. Yeah, it yeah. seems more, because even for me, if he drinks, I would wonder why he's drinking. It could be that he's yeah. unhappy or trying to mask some pain if he even drinks too much. But mm-hmm. I wouldn't tell him the reason why you're not studying is because yeah. you're drinking, because that doesn't seem, okay. it seems like there's more going on than that. So, mm-hmm. you know, he really does need help. Do you live with him? No, he lives separately. Okay. He, he lives with, but the thing is that he hates being on his own. Every night he has to have his friends with mm-hmm. him. Every, either girlfriend or friends. Uh, they're always with him in the flat yeah. or something uh, together. Uh, so he never stays on his own. If he's on his own, he keeps phoning his friends. Oh, come over, come over. What shall we do? Can we go for a for, for drink or something like that? Yeah. So he's always a sort of, he hates to be on his own. He hates that. Right. Well, you know, that that again could point to a lot of people have that feeling, but it could point to what he's dealing with emotionally, that sitting with himself with his feelings is something he can't tolerate or that he feels very lonely. And even the ability to be alone uh, and be happy alone is actually a prerequisite to feel love. That's uh, Eric Fromm talks about that in The Art of Loving, where we have to feel okay being by ourselves. And it is actually a, a very strong sign of mental health that we can tolerate that, but maybe he does have a difficulty yeah. Yeah. being alone, one, because of the loneliness, but also because it means he's going to feel his feelings, which is something he might be trying okay. to avoid. I see. Yeah, okay. so it seems like he really is, is uh, you know, struggling, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, we have to see what we can do. How is your relationship with him now? Uh, recently, it has been much better. We used to get into a lot of arguments before. Mm-hmm. Uh, continue. I say you're spending too much money, you're drinking too much, and we get into arguments. Recently, I don't, I don't interfere anymore. I just kept telling, I apologize, and you know, and if I can support you in any way, I can. Although financially, I can't because you're earning money yourself, and and, and you have to live within your means, and and you know things like that. I just, I just, I just keep myself away. Mm-hmm. It's very hard for me not to say anything. Sure. Uh, well, you mentioned you're trying right. not to be uh, as controlling, and so yeah, that's good. Exactly. I'd say continue doing that. Well, you can't control him um, anyway, which is something. Mm-hmm. One, we don't know if we even know what's best for someone. We have to let them. And yeah. two, we can't control someone's yeah. behavior or what they yeah. do, So, especially yeah. as they get older. So good. Try to give him that and not actually leave space for you guys to have a more positive relationship yeah. where you can be more support for him. But he's going to need some, he's going to need help. 
he looks after himself. He's got a great bunch of friends, and he plays football three times a week, and he's in gym every night, and, you know, he looks after his own okay. health and things like that. Um, uh, it's just those two, three times a week, then he goes out with his friends for <laughs> that <laughs> and this and that, that it just gets very... Well, that can be okay. Did, his, did anyone in your family or his father's side have a drinking problem? Not as far as I know. No. Okay, because you seem very no. preoccupied with it. I don't, you know, I'm not sure how much he's drinking, but him just going out is not something that I'd be very concerned about. If he's getting blackout drunk or if he's, you know, getting himself into a lot of trouble, then yes. But from what you described so far, I don't see that happening. So I wouldn't no. harp so much on the drinking, and I would focus on him deserving to get help even just saying what me and your dad did you know we made a lot of mistakes and we created a lot of pain for both you and your brother and i'm sorry about that i really hope um you know you will will get some help because you deserve that help yeah well okay thank you thank you for your call sure absolutely have a great day bye-bye let's go to another caller radio hamra you're on the air hello yes hi yeah, finally, thank you. Thanks <laughs> Hi, for thanks me. for calling. Um, the reason why I'm calling is because I'm entering my final year. Mm-hmm. And after final year of... Very final year of... Yeah, middle school. Oh. I don't know how you say it in uh, America. Uh, <laughs> in university, for us, it's your college and therefore uh, high school. Uh-huh, okay, yeah, yes. School. Right, okay, so how old are you? Eighteen. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so I was... I'm doubting between becoming a dentist or becoming a lawyer. And okay. I have pros and cons for both sides. Sure. Becoming a dentist, for me at least, and in my head, how I picture it, is less stressful. And I already... I already know many things about becoming a dentist because I've worked there and I have many... I've been in... The, you say that in America I have been there um, not working but working for my high school you know what I mean sure okay in a dentist the dental office so just walking around um, doing the little things and even doing some procedures with them but not on any license or something like that okay but I don't know uh, that much about law or becoming a lawyer but something really speaks to me, and uh, the more I look look it up on the internet and see things like how a regular day is, and I've talked to a few people who work or practice law, and they all recommend it to me. And then I talk to my own uh, therapist about it, and she told me, you like talking, you like um, doing presentations, you like putting up arguments and always getting your um, defending yourself with words and vocabulary. Uh, mm-hmm. By the way, speaking um, of of the words, w- your sound is coming in a little bit unclear. If you can, I don't know if you're on speaker. Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, it's off now. Okay, thank you. Okay. So you're 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 torn right now between law and dentistry, and you have to declare your major at this point. Is that right? Not yet, but I like to plan ahead for 
for so many months. So I need to know uh, by December. I need to make my decision by then. Okay. But I don't know it. So me and my mom were argue- arguing about it. And that's when I called you. Maybe you <laughs> okay. can open my eyes. Or okay, so you and your mom, are, what are you guys arguing about? What is she saying? Yeah, um, I want to be... Right now, I'd rather be a lawyer because I feel like that's more me. But my mom says she wanted to become a dentist for so long and it's less stressful and I think it will make you happier. And then I talked to my my therapist about it and she said, go and do whatever you feel like it. But if you ask me, I think you are going to be a great lawyer and everything around it. So don't become a dentist and do what you think is right. Mm-hmm. And I know that's the ultimate goal and ultimate meaning, but I don't know what's right. Sure. Well, you know, the thing is with these kinds of choices uh, and most choices in life, there isn't a clear right and wrong. Um, and that can make it more difficult. So it's not like it's math where you can say, okay, 2 plus 2, it equals 4 and doesn't equal 5 or doesn't equal uh, 3. It's not going to be that way, which makes it harder. And um, definitely I agree with what your therapist said about it has to be your choice, not your mother's choice. So if you oh, want to... Yeah, if you want to talk to her, you can talk to her, but at the end of the day, absolutely has to be your choice and your decision. Um, and it's a tough one for many people to make. And we're going to talk a bit after the break about you know what's going on and see if we can uncover some things that might help guide you. But we have to recognize that we're not going to come to some conclusion that's going to be very, very no, clear. But you might come to some place where you feel better about it. So just hang on the line. Let's talk after the break, okay? Thank you. All right. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. back let's go to the caller we're with before the break you still there yeah i'm still there okay all right so um, you're, and the word i was looking for was yeah. uh internship. internship yes when i was in high school i right. did a lot of internships i don't know the plural for that uh at a dentist clinic and i've seen uh, all sides from it but i haven't seen the same sides for being a lawyer or anything yeah which which might not be a bad idea it's good to see that to really see what it's like a lot of times we don't know what a career really looks like Um, we can hear about it or think about it and it's good to experience it so if you can somehow talk to some lawyers and also um, experience being in a law firm that'd be good and then recognizing that whatever either career there's a lot of ways you can do them like so not all dentists are going to have the same type of career path and work life and lawyers obviously there's a huge range of uh, different areas of laws and ways you can work but anyway coming back to you so you said from what you said about your conversation with your mom for a long time you've at least you wanted to become a dentist correct yeah okay because i wanted to uh, work in care so becoming a doctor or becoming a dentist that was all the same area and dentists really attracted me Okay, and is anyone in your family that's a dentist? Was it any way influenced? No. no. Okay, so that was your no, own. Just me and my mom. Okay, so did you just live with your mom? Yeah. Okay, your dad's not in the picture. No. No. Okay. Uh, do you want to talk much about that, or is that? 
Yeah, of course, I don't mind. Okay, because so, it seems like I can't tell if you got a little bit sad when I mentioned that or what your response was. Uh, my response to what? To b- about your father. I, I just felt that like you got, I heard a sadness, but I wasn't sure if that oh, was. Oh, no, no. Okay. Yeah, it's, I've spoken about my dad a lot. Uh, okay. It's just the typical refugee story. So mm. um, being a fugitive to a European country and then my dad being in and out of the picture for a long time. And then we both decided to have him out of the picture because it also was my decision. Mm-hmm. And... I don't speak that much to my family because I'm always like a black sheep. Mm. Um, And I'm totally fine with that because I've lived like that for as long as I know. And it also, I don't know, keeps me going. Mm. Being the only one and... What what made you... Yeah. What, What made you the black sheep? Why would you be the black sheep? Because I didn't... My mom is... On the, like everyone is uh, believing and being a Muslim, that's totally fine. But my mom wasn't, and there were many conversations and arguments mm. about that. And me being her kid and looking a lot like my mom, I'm not believing or not Muslim. So um, <laughs> I was the only one, and it was obvious that I wasn't. And my mom was kind of in between. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't speak the language. Uh-huh. I never learned because of protecting reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see. Okay, so, yeah, so in that way you always felt like the outcast. It feels very unfair, uh, unjust. It even makes me think about becoming a lawyer, something like a feeling of justice could be. Exactly, there. and that's what, yeah. my, that's what most people don't get is. There are many people who feel the same way or have the same problems. And even with, in, my mom also was in court of, about custody of me. Mm-hmm. And all those stories about it make me wonder what it's like. And one reason that I want to become a dentist is because I wanted to talk to people, have interaction and help people. Mm-hmm. But being a dentist is so superficial in my eyes. You only help them with their smiles or something like that. It's well, really yeah. well, their teeth. Yeah. I mean, it's important. Yeah, that's. I mean, you don't have to feel that you, you don't have to care about it necessarily, but it's you know, dental health is something. It does. It's not just about the aesthetics. That's that could be part of it, but we, our teeth can be very important. But if it's not something that really interests you anymore, that's obviously up to yeah. you. Okay. And being a lawyer, and you could really, really help somebody, and you spend more hours with the. In total, you can have more conversation with the same person if you are their dentist, but you have more deep and meaningful conversations, uh, and you can actually help them, as, in my opinion at least, as a lawyer. You, in different ways. Helping with somebody's yes. mental health is also great, and it should be done, and there are many people that should be doing it, but I don't feel like it's... Yeah, I don't know if it's me. Okay, well, that's very important, and... Um, you're you're right. Even you know, use that word superficial. In some ways, your interactions with with patients as a dentist, yeah, they're going to be shorter times, and that's another way it might you might feel to you more superficial. You'd rather create a more um, a deeper connection with someone else that you're helping in a legal way. That that's possible. Is there an area of the law that you th- that ap- appeals to you? Yeah. Um, uh, one is 
so talk to the speak. Ah, sometimes my English lacks a bit too much, but I think I can get out of this one. <laughs> uh, You're doing accidents. Fine. Okay. At least I googled a few things around here. So being a corporate lawyer, being a, a custody lawyer, all those kinds of things. But there was one famous lawyer, Kamran Yadidi, and I think you spoke about him once. And I've looked him up and seen a few things he did. And that's, in my opinion, a bit of the best of both worlds, because you work with the big insurance companies, but you help the, yeah, the little guy. Okay, sure. So that that's something you like to do. Now, um, coming back... Yeah. Well, coming back to what you mentioned a little bit in the previous segment, when you talk about pros and cons, what do you think are your strengths that would make you good at, at both both of those careers, being a dentist or being a lawyer? Well, in English, it's harder for me to yeah, argue and speak, <laughs> but in my native language, I am very fluent, and I always keep coming back with um, snappy, uh, smart, and... So, in that is ah, in that side, I'm very social, so I <laughs> can talk and interact very good. And I always hear that people trust me, and they, um, they tr- even though they have spoken for me for two hours, three hours, they trust me immediately. And I've done work with this before, so I've been working at the camp, working for a small company, and they always keep telling me the same thing. Uh, do the presentation, mm-hmm. uh, go to this meeting, do that. You're the best speaker, go do this. Mm-hmm. And I really like doing that. So the more I did that, the more I felt like being at one clinic, being a dentist just for my entire life, wasn't going to cut it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the way I heard about um, practicing law from a good friend whose dad is a big lawyer, he always told me the same stories that my mom came up with, the custody stories, and I thought they matched better for me than being a dentist. Okay, so it seems like more and more you're you're leaning that way. So what's what's keeping you, or what's what's the dilemma then? It seems like more and more being a lawyer is what you think would make the most sense for you. What's your dilemma? My dilemma is that. I had a stressful life my entire life so far, and, mm-hmm. and I also want a moment when I'm older to relax and not be busy with, oh, I need to fix this, or I need to fix that, mm-hmm. or I'm worrying about this, or I'm stressing over that. I also want a moment of peace, and I don't think I need it for at least I'm 40 or 30, but doing it until I retire, I don't know if I can keep up. Mm. And also, finding a job as a dentist is way easier than finding a job as a lawyer. And if you really want to, you could always get to. There's always place for the best who really want it and really are ready to do anything for it. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if I could do that for so many years. Well, that's, you know, now you're saying that again, and that's something that concerns me because that tells me you're not doing well or you're not feeling good i'm glad you're going to therapy but you know whatever your whatever job you choose you're probably going to do it for like 40 years or 50 years or whatever it might be 35 40 years let's say it's going to be a long time but you, that's going yeah. to be your that's like basically the big chunk of your life so 
to think that, okay, I have to just do this for a while, then live life and be, you know, enjoy myself. That's not to me the right strategy more that hopefully you can make life be good while you're living it, you know, during, during the working years, you know, so it's not just, I'll, I'll get to relax someday, but yeah, work can be stressful or it's difficult at times, but that work or that life won't just feel overwhelming. That will feel okay. I totally agree with you. And that's not entirely how I meant it. Okay, okay. It was more that I like living with a bit of stress. I like doing things I barely, so if I, some people say I can't do something, then I really want to do okay, it. Okay, so you like challenges. Because I always feel like I can, and I haven't been proven wrong since I don't know how many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I like to keep this flow going, keep going, and keep going. But it kind of, kind of worries, uh, worries me um, when am I not feeling like this no mm-hmm. more when do I want to have a regular simple boring life I don't know well you know life is <laughs> difficult you know yeah you can have all those I, things but you know I'll tell you what and I guess I don't have to tell you this because you've experienced that but life is difficult and it always will be difficult doesn't mean we still can in, enjoy it or have happiness or be content with our life but it's going to be difficult no matter which path you choose, even so as dentists, they say have a very stressful life too, because people that come to see dentists tend to not be so happy and they can have a pretty high uh, rate of unhappiness in their job. So yeah, it's not that, it, yeah. So it's not that I wouldn't say dentist is going to be less stressful. Maybe it's easier to find a job or have a career, but if you have your own practice or you're working with someone else, it's still going to be a lot of work. Um, so from what you're describing, it seems like what you want to do is be a lawyer. One, you're not sure if it's going to be easy and that concerns you. And also you mentioned your mom, uh, strongly arguing against it. What was her argument about becoming a dentist? Exactly what I just said about, uh, having a stressful life and keep going on and on and on and on. And she is like, when is it going to stop? When are you going to just take a, uh, regular job from nine to five? Have a life, have kids, and do your job, enjoy it. You seem to enjoy dent- uh, being a dentist. Yeah, I do. So why don't you do it then? Well, okay. Um, I don't understand why being a lawyer can't be a, a nine-to-five yeah, type a, of a job. <laughs> yeah, it depends on what you do. Some, you know, you could be. I know dentists that work too much, and I know lawyers that work too much. And yeah, if you get into corporate law, especially at the beginning, or if you stay, you will work probably too much. But there's lots of areas of law. There isn't just if you're a lawyer, you have to work 12 hour days. Uh, there's lots of things you can figure out. So it seems like more and more you're, you want to be a lawyer. And she said you enjoy dentistry. It seems like maybe her mind was set on that or she thinks it's easier. Yeah, but, her mind was definitely already set. But yeah. it's hard to already make a choice in yeah this part of my life mm-hmm. because I don't know that much about both. And I have seen the surface so I have an right. internship there, and I spoke with a lot of lawyers because uh, my through friends and family and through work, I've encountered many of them, and I have spoken about practicing law for so many hours with actual lawyers and how it's like. Mm-hmm. I haven't had an internship, but I'm planning to do it soon. Good. But it's just, am I committing the rest my coming 40 years to this, or am I going to do that? And it is both completely different worlds. Sure. They are different worlds, and although you do have to make this choice now, 
it doesn't literally mean for the next 40 years you're going to be locked into one or the other. Um, I'm sure changing is not going to be easy, but if you found that you're in the wrong place, you can change. I don't want you to feel like you're locking yourself in some prison, and if it's no, you know painful, you can't get no, out of it. The reason why I talk like this and why it may come over as I'm uh, as the prison you just mentioned mm -hmm. is whatever I do, I want to do it great. I just don't want to be. A regular lawyer. I don't want to be a regular dentist. I really want to make something. Well, good, and I hope it. you do. So and I you want to have the choice as clear as possible, as sure. clear as possible, so I can really commit to it. And that's why I called. Of course, and that's. I think that's important. But I don't want you to think that. Okay, let's say if you started at twenty to become a dentist, that you couldn't become the best dentist you could be, or it was going to get in the way. That's saying suggesting you went for law for two years and then switched, or vice versa. So I don't want you to, you know, you're, one thing you're doing, it is a big decision, but you don't want to put too much pressure on it or make it so big that if I make the wrong choice, then I won't become the best I can be at whatever career. Or if I make the wrong choice, I'm going to be stuck and my life will be this, that, or the other. So that's what I, I want you to keep in mind is it is an important decision. I want you to really think about it. Obviously, it seems like you have. You're trying to even do your research and more than just research, talk to people involved, even give yourself experiences. That's all exactly the way you should do this. But then on top of that, make sure not to put too much pressure on yourself that I have to get it right and I have to know exactly what's right or else my career is going to be not as good as it can be or I'll make the wrong choice. And although you can talk to your mother. Yes. Yeah. And it, although you so can, career, yeah. Oh no, you go first. Well, I was just gonna say, although you can consult with your mom, you know, she can be there, but she needs to allow you to make this choice. She can't tell you you yeah. enjoy dentistry, so go do it. You tell her what you enjoy, because it's just like I can't tell you this food tastes good to you. You have to tell me how it tastes to you. So you have to choose what you think is the best for you. And so she can be there if you want to talk to her, but she has to allow for you to make that decision yourself and make sure it's coming from you at the end of the day. At many points, I'm very independent, like every point at school, but this about my career, I'm the next step of my life. My mom is the only one that really knows me, so that's why I'm kind of getting insecure when mm. I don't have a blessing for this. Interesting. Well, you could tell her, and you could even tell her that. You can talk a little bit more with her. It sounds like you guys just had the argument right now. Uh, maybe you had some before. No, no, it's almost every day. Okay, so. well, that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound pleasant, so you guys need to talk a little bit more, and you can even let her know, Mom, you know, you can, we can talk about it, and I'd rather you don't really be forceful with your opinion, even if you have one, but at the end of the day, if I do make a choice, having your blessing is going to mean a lot to me, to feel that I have your support and approval in what I'm doing, even if you might have a different idea. It's going to mean a lot to me in helping me uh, go forward with the best potential mindset so you can let her know that and she does need to be a little back off a little bit and give you that space yes she knows you but at the end of the day you know you better and you're going to be living this life and you have to be the one that makes that choice so again she can be a consultant but only if you ask for it but at the end of the day make sure you make the choice and trust yourself you know yourself and you're going to make that choice and you'll live with it. And like I said, even if it's not the right choice, if you feel like it's totally wrong a, a year, two years, five years, don't feel stuck. you got to live the life you want. You're going to do it for a long time. Don't get set in that mindset of, well, I want to start relaxing soon, so let me not change the career path because it's going to be too hard. That's okay. You're going to do it for, you're going to do it for a long time. And you're going to enjoy your life even during that time. So it's not like you have to wait to retire to be happy. Actually, it, when you retire and stop doing things, you're more likely to become unhappy. So... Find work that you like and you'll be happy during that period of your life. 
and don't think you have to find some kind of easy path. It's going to be hard no matter what you do. That, that last sentence really got to me, yeah. Um, I think I know what I want to do now. Okay. And it always has been the same thing, but you just confirmed everything I just thought. So, okay. Well, I wish you yeah. the best in that. Whatever you're doing, be good at it, and you're going to be great at it, and and, and uh, you deserve that, and you can call me back and tell me how it's going. Okay, I will call you back. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, take care as well. Bye. Thank you. Bye. All right. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. back let's go to another caller radio hamra you're on the air hi sorry yes hi thanks for calling hi thank you um so i'm a persian college student and i've been an avid listener of yours for a while now well, thank you and, uh, yeah and i found uh, so much of what you say to be helpful in my life so as i'm sure many others also think of thank and you so I, I hold you to a very high standard uh as someone who masterfully understands the intricacies of psychology and other topics so i hold that same standard for you and other topics that you choose to venture into as well okay well thank you for those kind words and uh not that i want to live up to your standard i'll live up to the standard i can but those are very kind words thank you so much thank you so the reason i call is that uh i'm not sure if it was last week or two weeks ago but kind of in the backdrop of what's been happening in the country lately. Mm-hmm. Personally, what worried me is that I think you recently, in my opinion, crossed the line when you talked about the Black Lives Matter or BLM group in a positive light. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it seemed like you were going by the playbook narrative and the platitudes that the race-baiting mainstream establishment media wants people to believe. And so the reason I called is that uh, many people, they might say false or ridiculous things, and I don't have the desire or time to confront every one of them, but I felt a really strong duty to come onto your show and present a different viewpoint, sure. one, that, one that concerns itself with facts rather than emotions, since I know that so many people look up to you as a purveyor of information. I don't want to let your comments on BLM go unchallenged. Sure. Well, I'd li- like to hear what you're thinking. So <clears throat> I was pretty shocked when I heard you defend BLM because you really couldn't have chosen a more racist, terroristic, and violent group to speak highly of. And this is why I called to present an opposing viewpoint, because I find that many people are stuck in an airtight echo chamber where they might be found. Um, And I'm also aware that, unfortunately, uh, in the West, uh, many universities, uh, psychology and sociology majors, have unfortunately become somewhat of a running joke. Uh, having been completely infiltrated with cultural Marxism and social justice warriors. And I just expected someone of your high caliber that I look up to to come out of the schooling system or university unscathed from the ideology. But it seems like it didn't work out and you fell for it. So I wanted to give you a chance to talk now. Well, uh, well I'd like to know what you're, you're opposing of what I said. Um, and you mentioned them being... Militant. Now, what I had mentioned was Black Lives Matter to me is a very important issue. The 
people who are now running it or if people say some things or even we see with Antifa, there's people that are doing some things that are not okay. But I'm focusing on the idea of what Black Lives Matter means. Not saying that everything the group does is good or that this organization, um, I believe everything they're saying. But the idea of Black Lives Matter, which I think sometimes what I mentioned, I think it was last week, the idea that people have that that itself is racist to say Black Lives Matter to me is not true because the way the movement was created was that black lives were being lost and were not being, uh, there was not consequences to when those black lives were being lost. And that's why the organization started. Even I said, I'd prefer that if it was called Black Lives Matter 2, T-O-O, meaning that these lives also matter. So it was not to say other lives matter less or black lives matter more. It was actually saying black lives matter as much as other lives. Sure. Uh, and that's a good distinction that you brought up, that just because you might say the, the BLM or Black Lives Matter, that you don't necessarily endorse everything else that they've done. Mm-hmm. But I was just hoping that you would make that distinction, because uh, Black Lives Matter is the, like, the trademark name of them. So when you say that in a sentence, it kind of goes, uh, would lead one to believe that you're also supporting, or at least not calling out all of the violent and racist things they've done. But um, my... My problem with the uh, slogan, Black Lives Matter, is that it's based on a false premise in that uh, the black lives, sure, they're being lost, some of them unjustly, the more mainstream cases, a few of them. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that it assumes that there's a, a disproportionate rate of that happening. And thank goodness that we have FBI statistics. We could look at uh, the rate of crimes being committed, the rate of police encounters, the rate of violent uh, resistance to police, and then we see that actually, if you look at the FBI statistics, that actually white people, for the amount of violent crimes they commit, they get shot more than what you would expect. So it's just the narrative is a false one. They're not being killed at any more disproportionate rate, and that's just like a canard that just never seems to go away. And I think it's led to uh, this whole culture of, of hating white people. Um, I'm a university student, and (laughs) I see this all the time, everywhere I go. And this is a a good opportunity for me, because I'm a Persian guy, I'm not white, Mm -hmm. that I can speak out and say this is an insane amount of racism that you're pointing towards white people. And when you see some, uh, they have their rally, the free speech rally, or whatever some people call it, they mischaracterize it actually as a neo-Nazi movement or something. I've personally been to the Berkeley, uh, the Berkeley, UC Berkeley free speech rally. Um, there were people of all stripes there. I was certainly there. People trying to mischaracterize as neo-Nazi or something, but it was a freedom of speech rally, and it was just people, not even white, that are tired of blaming white people for everything and making people of color and minorities uh, the perpetual victims. And I don't think it's a healthy thing to keep painting someone as a victim. Okay, I don't, not about painting people as a victim, but we do have to look at the reality of the situation. And even if we look at statistics on uh, jail time or people who are in prison for drug-related offenses, we see that African-Americans, I don't have the numbers on me, but many times over are in jail for drug-related offenses when the percentage of drug use um, and selling drugs is equal among blacks and whites. So I wouldn't agree that all the statistic, the statistics you're saying, and I would have to look at those FBI statistics again, because from what I know about the FBI statistics, they showed that the proportion was not equal 
um, right. that the blacks were still being, uh, it was more. But that's, you know, that's, I would have to review those statistics again. But to me, yes, to say uh, every we have to hate white people is not at all what I'm trying to promote. But if we look at the history of the United States of America, it's perpetrated on a lot of the whites doing very bad things to the minorities or the other groups. And that's as, undeniable. As has every culture in the world. Everyone okay. has been enslaved. Everyone has been oppressed. So I don't find it helpful to keep bringing mm. this up. Yes, but I think to then say that they're, they have completely accepted all of that, I don't think it's true. And even when we look at these monuments that were being defended, um, when we look at the idea that it's because we're trying to protect history, that to me is bogus because we don't protect or we don't celebrate bad parts of history to say, let's remi- remember this. If they said we want to make a statue to commemorate the person who who was running a Japanese internment camp, you wouldn't be like, okay, it's to remember history. We don't celebrate that. We can have a museum to remember that. So I'm not saying forget history, but when we're talking about the Civil War, which although, yes, it had a lot of economic factors and other things going in, involved, but was about uh, keeping slavery a th- something alive and to say we want to celebrate that part of our history, I think that's actually totally not okay, along with there is a rise in white nationalist, neo-Nazi, white supremacy, KKK groups. This is not, uh, that's their statistics on that as well. And it's something we have to take very seriously. So are all white people bad? No. But has the history of America and, yes, around the world in different ways been marred by some very heinous and not okay acts by white people? Yes. Does that mean they should have to be punished for it now? No. But do we have to fight for more justice? Yes. There's still a lot of racism in the United States. It's not about victimizing. It's about truth. Um, There's still a lot of racism in the United States. And that's something that I will definitely talk about and defend, not to put white people down, but we have to recognize what's going on. We want to live in a post-racial America, and that's not where we're living in, where race has no effect on anything. And I think that's the the concern I have. Is free speech important? Yes. And I think actually um, there has been too much political correctness that has somehow taken away the right for some people to speak. You can disagree, but still listen. And that I think is important. But hateful speech also, we have to be aware of it and not just say, well, it doesn't matter. Someone could say hateful speech and no one should say anything about it. You can still strongly disagree. Do we have to silence them? No, I don't think you have to silence them. Okay. So there is a lot to go over there. I wrote three or four points. So the first one, um, I've had many a debate with people. This is a very common point you brought up, uh, misunderstanding of the statistics. You said drug sentences, uh, like for the same drug, for the same offense, is longer. uh, That's not what I said. I said the people in jail. But that's related to that, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the war on drugs has been systematically a war on colored people. I think that's pretty clear from the statistics. Right. So... uh, just with that, that's another canard that will they serve a, a longer time for the same uh, drug sentence? Uh, that's very simple. It's because when you get caught with a repeating history of crimes, yeah, you're going to get put in for longer when you're repeat. That that's uh, not what those statistics are revealing. It, only it, it actually is. It, this is something very very simple. It's been shown. That's what it is. When you get put in again for the same crime, you're going to go in for longer time. Okay, but when drug use is equal among whites and blacks, then how do you explain that? It's not. That's not the case. You don't get put in for longer. It's just like women aren't paid less for the same. That's, that's know, another okay. art. Women are not paid when, less. But I'm saying when drug, you're saying drug use is not equal between whites and blacks? No, no, I'm saying when it's equal, but when you have other background of violent crimes or other crimes, you're going to get put in for longer. 
Okay, but even the first arrests are being more. We're not I just talking. No. Okay. No. Um, so second, um, about the monuments, I'm no fan of the Confederate history, obviously, mm-hmm. um, or other uh, oppressive um, history of uh, cultures as well. But I find it a bit uh, specious logic when you talk about monuments being taken down. It just seems to me like, wow, I mean, the Egyptian pyramids, it was built on the backs of millions and thousands mm-hmm. of slaves and horrible oppression, or the Colosseum, we go and celebrate it. But yeah, it stood for something that more aristocratic people would watch. The slaves, the gladiators that were captured from other cultures, and they would, they would fight against tigers and other creatures, sure. and people would just cheer them on. So that's like the pinnacle of oppression, but I don't believe in knocking those down or putting them in a monument, uh, putting them in a, uh, a museum. I would leave them there. That, we can learn from the sure. mistake. Well, that's a good. But, uh, well, that's a good point. But at the same time, we're not just talking about a building. We're talking about a statue to a person. We're celebrating a person with a statue. I'm not. When you have a statue of someone up, we're saying, "Look at Robert E. Lee. Let's celebrate him." It's not a historic remembrance. They put that up. It's not a building that was there that we're saying now demolish it. We're saying we're celebrating someone who was part of a very ugly thing, and we should not be celebrating that person. I'm not talking. I'm not against having museums and monuments. And I think you bring up a good point. That's something we can think about. Things like the pyramids and and the Colosseum that we might celebrate. That's worth looking at. What I'm saying, we want to make sure you don't take down this statue of this person. I to me that's not okay. Or we want to have the Confederate flag and wave it, which is, again, based on the Civil War, which was we want to continue slavery, was a big part of that. To me, that's something different than because it's ter- it's just tearing down history indiscriminately. We're talking about celebrating something negative. If someone said, I want to put a... If someone says, I want to put a Hitler statue at UCLA, would you be okay with that? Would you say, yeah, let's put Hitler statues everywhere so we don't forget him? Well, no, I would want to go retroactively in time and break them down. Okay. Uh, maybe, like, right not... now, if we did it, then... Okay, but well, that's what, we're, just because something existed does, doesn't mean it should continue, right? I mean, that's just because something's so then you're there. you're advocating for tearing it down. It's almost Orwellian. You're going back and almost deleting the history. No, that's, I'm not talking about deleting. I'm saying that if we're having something that we're celebrating, we realize it's not something worth celebrating. We should change that. We can change that. We can't retroactively. Bill Cosby gets caught for doing what he did. We might not then put his show on because we see it as something different. You might see him differently. And of course, everything is very complex. So I'm not saying these are just black and white issues, but I'm saying when people are saying when there's a Confederate uh, war hero being celebrated, and to me that doesn't feel good, that that was about putting people into slavery. I think that's something that's not about victimizing or race baiting. It's a very real thing and that it takes some understanding to see. I can see how someone wouldn't like that. And they wouldn't want that person celebrated. We're not talking about removing history. We're talking about celebrating people. A statue is not just history. It's about celebrating a person. I think you're attributing to much more than that. Just like the Colosseum, at least maybe this is a agree to disagree point. I don't see the difference. The Colosseum, in fact, it could be seen as far more than just a statue of Augustus Caesar. It could be seen much more oppressive or whatever than just a single statue of a single guy. Oh yeah, a lot of very bad things happened there, absolutely. And there's mem- there's memorials of World War II and the Holocaust, I think, should definitely be there. That's right. different than a statue of a person that people are saying, I want the person to still be there as a statue. No one's removing Robert E. Lee from the history books. We need to remember what happened then. Absolutely. It's very important. We're not erasing it. But when we're saying a war that was focused on and one of the pillars of that war was slavery, 
that's something that we should race. Again, I'm not going to wear shirts that say Iran hostage crisis because that was a bad part of the Iranian history. I'm not going to, it was part of my history, don't erase it. If they're saying we want to build a monument to the people that took the people hostage, I would be against that. Not because I want to erase the history, but because I'm saying that's not okay to promote that, to celebrate that. When people are waving Nazi flags here in the United States, that's a problem. We actually went to war against the Nazis here. Talk about well, erasing. I went to war. An interesting point you bring up. I was about to segue into another stat. How about this? Let's hang on the line because we. I have to get to commercial break, but I want to let us finish the conversation, okay? Uh, okay. All right, thank you. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. back before the break we're with the caller caller are you still there uh yes okay so just letting you we have just about 10 11 minutes um sure. to go uh you i think you wanted to make a point though right before you we went to break uh yeah let me see there's something about going to the like we've been to war with lots of people something like that um right so oh uh i think it was oh right i said i was going to uh, segue into the statue in seattle i'm not sure if you're aware no that um there's actually a lovely statue of um, Vladimir Lenin in Seattle, as disgusting mm. as that is. Um, and it's just like, again, I'm not trying to really entrench myself and defend one side or the other. I'm just saying, for the sake of being consistent, you have a statue of not even an American, a foreigner. We fought, you love, people love like, uh, to say we fought Nazis, but oh, we also fought sure. communists. Yeah, maybe that statue could be taken down. Right. What? Well, hold on. Um, okay. Which which was objectively far more bloody, way more than the National Socialists or the Nazis were, objectively. And even then, just to show my uh, dedication to fundamentals of free speech, as disgusting as Vladimir Lenin is, uh, I still don't think we should tear that statue okay. down. That, that's, but opinion. that's your opinion. My opinion is I'm okay with that being taken down, too. So I'm not, that's fine. I just wanted to uh, show that I'm consistent. Okay, not, that's fine. Well, that yeah, I mean, but I, again, I, I hope you can agree that, but you're saying that if we were going to put up a, a statue of someone, you wouldn't pr uh, agree with putting it up. Like if they said, let's vote on if we should put a statue of Hitler up, you wouldn't be, well, it's part of history, let's put that up. Like, yeah, it's not too pragmatic. Now, I would say there's something to be said if like, uh, the people in the city or community or town vote for it, but uh, it's not too pragmatic okay. to put such like a divisive figure now, at least. But if you sure. go retroactively, I don't know how many years um, all these statues were put up. I don't think it was within the last couple of years. No, it probably wasn't. And that, to me, again, doesn't make a difference. I mean, it can yeah. make a difference because, uh, you know, but I'm not saying that's not a reason because it's been there that it should stay there. To me, is not an argument. Just like because a law has been a law doesn't mean it has to stay a law. That doesn't mean much because a tradition is a tradition. You can't change it. Um, I looked up some. I tried to uh, take more research. But as far as the shootings go, white people make up roughly 62% of the U.S. population, but only 49% of those who are killed by police officers. African-Americans, however, account for 24% of those fatally shot and killed despite being just 13% of the U.S. population. So this is um, 2015 statistics. Um, and also when it comes to the drug Imprisonments, um, I was looking at PolitiFact and it was saying, uh, it was confirming a comment that someone had made. 
and they said that about 5.8 times they're serving more time in jail for drug well, related. Well, I don't know if that looks at previous history of... Okay, well, I think they, conf- they, con- they were basically controlling for a lot of things. I mean, but is your... So you think there's no systematic anything going on, any kind of racism against minorities currently? Like we're past that? Sorry, I just, I'm not sure if I finished on my last point. I'll get to your point in just sure. a second. Let me take a look at my paper. Um, oh, okay, so before we go to that, I can just, uh, I wanted to include this point. Um, uh, you mentioned that, uh, you asked me if it concerns me that uh, you see people with um, the, uh, the Nazi flag, sure. uh, the Hitler's flag. Um, but I would also, just to be consistent, uh, does it concern you that literally everywhere there are people with communist flags with the hammer and sickle with Che Guevara shirts? They feel like they're edgy or something. Those communist flags are actually everywhere. The <laughs> Nazi ones are some stupid uh, idiot. It's sure. idiot that's marching around with it. But I'm much more worried about the communist one, how that's gone in the past. And, and the <laughs> thing is, again, people say, oh, defending Nazis or anything. No, actually, you know what? Here's a big red pill. Nazi stands for National Socialist Party, National Socialist Workers Party, actually, and they're both left-wing ideologies. So, so no, what, what does that have to do with anything? Oh, no, just, again, uh, when people say you're defending uh, Nazis or pointing one out and say one of them was objectively worse, they both are leftist ideology. It just goes into the bigger picture of how... I don't know if I'd say Che Guevara is objectively worse than Nazism. Communism. Communism is objectively worse than... Okay, but even if an idea he stood for is worse, it doesn't mean he's worse than Hitler. Okay, well, we can metrically uh, measure how... I'm not saying... I know, you said objectively. I'm just saying I, I think that's kind of preposterous. Well, communism, you, you're, you're really... Okay. You're, uh, for, I'm just saying uh, it's just like a Nazi uh, or Hitler stood for uh, National Socialism or maybe Benito Mussolini did... Uh, Che Guevara stood for the bigger ideology. I'm saying one of the ideologies is objectively worse, but it's always been given a pass, which is extremely disturbing. Okay. Um, well, I think, so but I think when people are upset about when people are upset about Nazi Germany, they're less upset about socialism and more about things like the Holocaust. It's not about socialism because oh, yes, we. It is. Socialism is a, a state control. When you have big states, this is what happens. So my no, I'm not saying social. I'm not. I'm not. Talk, I'm not making a conversation about that. I'm saying when people say they don't like Nazis, they're not talking about socialism. They're talking right, about the I Holocaust. Know. I'm saying Nazism came about as a means of socialism. That's how they got the people riled up. Okay. They had the high sure. On the that's people. that's not what I'm arguing about. But I'm saying people don't like the the Holocaust. That people are being exterminated. Okay, and, and that's a good point. I don't like it either. And then I would have to say, have you heard of the, the Great Famine of China or the Holomador in Ukraine? How, like, sure, or King Leopold talking? killed like 10 million the people. Yeah, right. and King Leopold killed like 10 million people. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff in history that if they said they wanted to put a statue to those people, I'd be 100% against it. Right, and I'm taking more of a macro view. I'm just uh, kind of like public school system. I'm a little disturbed that I was never taught those things. Sure. Kind of. Kind of well, I mean, when I was a kid, we, we were taught that Columbus did something amazing, but really, he didn't. Mm. Okay, yeah, in my, yeah, at least in mine, when I went, there was some criticism of Yeah, when I, I was, I mean, maybe I'm a little bit older than you, not, I mean, however old I was, maybe in first, second grade, we were all about him, and we still celebrate him, I think, just because we celebrated him doesn't mean we can't reevaluate history and actually understand Definitely. it better. It's actually, yeah, sure. it's about understanding history better to, uh, rather than erasing it. It's actually, wait, we actually had the story wrong. Um, which is worth reevaluating, you know. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, you know, I, I appreciate you calling, and uh, I think it's good I, to look I, I, at... I interrupted your last... Or I wanted to say my statement before. Oh, sure. Do you Go remember ahead. what you were trying to say? No, you were trying to say something. I said something about, about racism in America. I mean, if you still consider it, would consider it an issue. I'm open to suggestions of saying where you might find it in the law or, or how people react, but mm -hmm. uh, honestly, the ones that are codified, like affirmative action... Wow, that is one of the most racist things I've ever seen. Not only is it racist to Asia, East Asians mostly and uh, European white people, but it's kind of like the bigotry of low expectation for minorities. Saying, well, it, you know, affirmative action is a very complex issue. Um, and is? Affirmative action. It's a, it's a complex issue. I see. Issue. It's, it's racist. Okay. <laughs> you could say it's affirmative. You're treating someone not on their merit, but on the color of their skin. Sure. Wow. I, I just, I don't know, it just rubs me really the wrong okay. way. I, what I rec and that's, again, it is very complex, but what I'm hearing from you is that you're saying anything that's from the left side, you're going to point out where there's flaws there. But I'm asking if there's racism in the United States and against four white people, that it's still easier to be a white person than a not white person in the United States of America. Right now, I think white people are the most hated in the world. Okay. I'm well, not even white, and I can notice that. Well, I can. No I understand what you're saying, that there's more of this backlash and people are talking about it, but still to, to think it's harder to be white than not white in the United States, I, I, I would disagree with. And some of that is not, again, we can't just say objectively, but I think based on my experience, I still okay. would think that it's m much more difficult to be a minority um, than to be white. I think we're trying to make things more equal, and to be honest, one of the things I do notice is that when people... Uh, are losing, and you probably, I know you'll hate this word, but their privilege, they do react to it. When things become more equal, when you had an advantage, you're not going to like it. And that's what a lot of people are experiencing. Things were unfair. Uh, we were starting the game and everyone else had 20-pound weights and you were going for a run and you were winning easily and now they took the weights off and they're catching up. You're like, wait a second, this isn't how it used to be. I don't like how this is. And any group that's had power throughout history has been reluctant to lose it and we can understand that. But I think some of what I've noticed is that people, um, when they lose that and the, the whites are, things are becoming more equal, they don't like the way that is. And even men have felt that with women, that when women's rights have been promoted, that they felt that it's a, an attack on men. Are there aspects of feminism or feminist movements that it did attack men? Yes. But is the idea of feminism to make rights equal a good thing? Absolutely. And have men felt attacked by that? Yes. Not because something unfair was happening, but because an advantage that they were having was being taken away. Something that was unfair was becoming more just, which meant they were losing an advantage. They didn't like that and they don't like that. Doesn't mean something unfair is happening or they're being attacked. It just means that by things becoming more fair, that meant they lost an advantage. I do have to end the show. I really do appreciate you calling because the only way we learn and grow is by having our ideas and um, our the things we think about challenged. And it shouldn't just be things shouldn't be presented just in one way. So thank you for calling and presenting your ideas. If you want to call back another time, please do. Uh, we can talk some more. Okay. Thank you for having me. Sure. Have a great day. Take all care. Right, thank you. Bye. -bye. All right. Thank you to all the callers and the listeners. Thank you to Rahman here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful day.